All right, I'm uh, here with Amy Stein. Amy is a professor of law at the University of Florida Levin College of Law. She is a nationally recognized expert on energy policy, uh, particularly with respect to federalism, the regulatory process, and administrative law. Uh, Amy's written about a number of elements of energy law, but today we want to talk about one of her articles uh, entitled uh, Distributed Reliability in the University of Colorado Law Review. Amy, thanks for being here. Thank you, David. Okay, I want to start um, with... Before we get into the sort of meat of your analysis, I want to start by asking what led you to embark on this project? What was it about the growth of behind-the-meter alternatives and distributed generation that got you interested in this paper? Yeah, thank you, David. Um, well, when I began this project, we were experiencing an unprecedented growth in the rise of solar rooftop installations. Um, and most scholars were addressing the barriers that accompany renewable energy, and I thought that was really important, but that they were ignoring this critical corollary, which was what happens when a number of individuals are not only trying to self-supply their own generation, but also are engaging in reliability resources and investing in those on their own terms. So... And what, can you say a little more about what you mean by reliability resources? Yeah, so I tried to focus in the paper at least on reliability resources. There can be a number of ways to establish reliability, but I focused on energy storage and demand response as being two of the critical ways that uh, we could see individuals investing privately in these resources as opposed to traditional utilities. Yeah, and, and for people that aren't as familiar with the way the grid works, can you explain how those resources can help provide reliability and a, a greener grid in the future? Yeah, so um, energy storage is very interesting because it encompasses so many different um, capacities. We have, you know, traditionally we have, util the utility has provided reliability resources. We can think about reliability both as adequacy, making sure we have enough resources, but also in terms of security and the quality of the electric grid. Um, and so the utility traditionally would um, invest in reliability resources. Sometimes we need them to be fast acting like peaker plants. Sometimes our historical types of energy storage are pumped hydro. Um, but now when we're talking about more private investment, we can think about batteries and flywheels and even Tesla's power wall for individuals to put in their home. Um, all of these things can help regulate the electric grid. And they can also help bolster some of our increasing uh, intermittent resources. That Renewables, one of their largest criticisms is that they're intermittent. Um, and of course, we need something to help uh, bolster that and energy storage can do that. Um, additionally, electric vehicles is a very interesting component of energy storage. Uh, there have been a lot of initiatives taking place to think about how your batteries in your electric vehicle can serve not only your vehicle, but also perhaps be, allow the, the grid access to them. And if you aggregate a number of electric vehicles, we could create a large sense of storage. Uh, the second type of reliability resource I focus on is demand response, um, and this is really the concept of reducing your usage at critical times during the uh, like peaks, for instance, when the electric grid is in need of additional resources. Uh, historically, the utility may call upon peaker natural gas plants to draw upon them during times of peak. But what a wonderful concept to instead call perhaps a big corporate customer and uh, have them on demand in a program where you can say, can you please stop using some of your non-essential
essential resources during these periods. Um, and so again, to help regulate the flow and the demand on our grid. Yeah, so I remember years ago, John, Willing, John Willinghoff, when he was chair of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, demonstrating how electric vehicles could be called upon in just the way that you describe. I, I just bought a Bolt, a Chevy mm-hmm. Bolt, and I don't have that option here in Austin, but I imagine that could be part of the part of my future. Yeah, definitely. So you use a transaction cost framework to talk about these issues. Back in the old days, um, everything was under the control of the monopoly utility, and they could just sort of organize this how they see fit or saw fit. Now, at least in many parts of the country here, here in Texas. Um, these are all arm's length transactions among, among separated distinct parties. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that transaction cost framework helps you think about this problem? Yeah, um, I mean, the more I thought about the problem, the more I realized that a fundamental obstacle to successful management of these reliability resources on a private level was going to be the separation of ownership and control. I found it to be a fascinating um, concept to think about the theory of the firm because that had always explored the boundaries between the firm and markets. Um, and the single owner theory in economics is something that we think about a lot or what would happen if we all owned it. And, of course, the utilities are not a perfect um, example of this because we have all these regulatory constructs on top of it. But, as you mentioned, we moved from a place where the, the utilities used to make all their own electricity when um, they were all vertically integrated. And when we moved to a competitive market, we moved more towards a make and buy where now they were reaching out to the market for their reliability resources. And in in my paper, I talk about maybe this a new dawn of a make and buy plus, where not only is the utility reaching out to perhaps merchant commercial plants in a formal market, but that they might also be reaching out to customers for these reliability resources. And that just really suggested to me that we needed a closer evaluation of this new ownership model. That it was different where a public utility was investing in reliability resources for a public purpose. And that there may be some tensions now when we're seeing private entities investing in reliability resources for perhaps more of a private purpose. Yeah, from the utilities point, or from the manager of the grid's point of view, not being able to actually completely control the use or dispatch of these resources, these distributed resources, is makes them feel a little less secure about their ability to keep the lights on. Now they have to procure them through some sort of economic transaction. Um, so, so do you have some sort of uh, what, what are your thoughts about how we can how, how the, we can keep the lights on in this new uh, distributed world? Yeah, and it's not only about control, David, but also about visibility. I mean, I think that that was one of the original ideas for me as I kept thinking, you know, historically, the utility had access to all of that information. And the more this information is being outsourced, the less of, I guess, it's control as well, but control over information as well as just the, the grid itself. Um, so I had two primary concerns. One, I kept thinking, um, what about these divergent interests that can exist where you have uh, a separation of ownership and control of these reliability resources? I think electric vehicles provides a nice example where, you know, you may allow the grid to have access to your battery when you don't expect to use it, but what if an emergency happens and all of a sudden you do need to take your car somewhere and the utility has just been draining your battery? And, of course, we could come up with contract mechanisms to try to adjust for that and penalties, and if it's a one-off situation, it shouldn't be monumental, but what happens, you know, if we see increasing amounts of divergent interest? That's just one minor 
minor example. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that was one concern, divergent interest. And the second one was um, asymmetric information, of course, as we've discussed, that um, not the visibility and the lack of control that corresponds to that. So you had asked about solutions. Um, and so I'm thinking, one, somehow a way to enhance visibility of the resources could be important. Um, and you start to see the utilities doing that. They're trying to incorporate more of these distributed reliability resources into their forecasting and planning, and that's essential. Um, also enhanced coordination. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about a distribution-type RTO, um, and New York, of course, in the Reforming the Energy Vision has been embarking on a, a research and a huge project to try to figure out what's the best way to do that. But that could be another way where we are better coordinating between the utilities and the customer. Um, also, the use of contract law and market rules in RTOs to help aggregate resources. We are definitely seeing that um, in a number of these areas where perhaps you know, one individual resource on its own can't do as much, but if we can aggregate them together, the utility can both use them in a, uh, a more prosperous manner and the individuals can benefit. Um, and also I consider the idea of maybe even utilities sort of reverting back to that, you know, historical model of vertically integrating where maybe they're going to be owning more of their own reliability resources um, than before. Uh, in Florida, for instance, FPNL, they just recently announced the um, creation and investment of the largest battery, uh, solar powered, that they will be four times as large as the currently existing um, battery storage, and it will be solar powered battery storage. So, and I mean, that's a vertically integrated utility, but just sort of an interesting example of seeing how. I think there'll be a lot of fluidity between, you know, no one sees a stop to the rise of distributed energy resources, both on generation and uh, reliability resources, but I think it's fascinating to see how um, the efficiencies that might play out between the vertically integrated utilities that can own their own and those that can't. Yeah. So, the, the, so the issue you just mentioned about uh, the utilities owning batteries is a controversial. We're, we're, we're talking right now, right before we're about to go into a conference on, on energy storage, the Austin Electricity Conference, and the theme is going to be about storage and batteries, and we're going to talk a little bit about what model there ought to be for for implementing or adding uh, more storage to the system, because we're going to need it as, for reasons you've already described, uh, to support renewables. Uh, in Florida, the utility can own it. Here in Texas, the wires companies cannot own it. Um, do you have any thoughts about um, that? Or is this just a set of experiments we have to wait and see how they play out? Yeah, it's a fascinating case study. I actually mentioned the Encore debate in my paper many years ago now, and that we still really haven't resolved it as, you know, something to think about. But um, I find it fascinating to think about how our prior regulatory constructs might need to be amended to try to think about something like energy storage, for instance. It's a unique product because it can provide both generation, transmission, and distribution resources. And our grid is, and our legal constructs are not set up to allow for that. We like, you know, these, we have divided our world and we let these resources play in different places. And now we have a resource that wants to play in all three spaces and the law is trying to figure out how to deal with that. So, I mean, energy, we have inherent trade-offs for sure amongst many of these things, but we have to decide the benefits of why we have that prior law that forbids the companies from owning these resources. Does it still make sense in an era where they're going to be able to probably profit most and be able to provide the maximum value for the grid if we allow it to realize all of its potential? 
Yeah, and like like as with generation, you know, it's hard to get people to invest in something if they don't feel secure about the revenue stream over the life of the project. And so, in Florida and California, where the wires companies can own it and can put it into the rate base, it's getting built. Yeah. And it's not getting built in other places, at least not as quickly. Well, and that's why I included that last one. I mean, I know realistically we're not going to revert back to vertically integrated, but I think it's fascinating to think about how there are some efficiencies that exist in the vertically integrated frameworks that, you know, don't exist when we're in the restructured market. So. Yeah. I imagine, um, I, you know, I just I imagine we'll have to wait and see. Texas has an ongoing uh Public Utility Commission docket on this issue now. They're struggling with it, so they're not closing the door on wires companies owning it, but they're struggling with it. And I, I, my understanding is they're considering whether um, they could own an energy storage resource if they were only going to use it for transmission and distribution purposes. Is that correct? Yeah, they had. A, it was precipitated by a proposal to build a, a battery instead of upgrading a substation. Mm-hmm. And the battery was about one-fifth the cost of upgrading the substation, and the PUC still said no, but they, but without prejudice, so they're still talking about okay. it. Yeah, they call these NWAs the non-wires yeah. alternatives. Yeah. I think they're fascinating to be thinking about. And as you mentioned, I think the better we could quantify the benefits, you would think that could have convinced the mm-hmm. commission, but I guess that's not going to be enough, even on a cost basis, to demonstrate that there are justifications for why perhaps there should be a change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Last question. In the time since you have written the article, is have there been um, developments that either point toward some of your proposed solutions and point away from others, or have you revised your thinking about this issue uh, based on sort of the experience since then? Yeah, um, so definitely I think that I see my proposed solutions uh, in practice, and that uh, is exciting. Um, I think that utilities are taking a number of steps to try to enhance the visibility of these resources. Um, I think they're doing a lot to try to incorporate them into utility planning and forecasting, um, not only in terms of customer adoption models, they're trying to actually assess how fast and how quickly customers are going to adopt these distributed reliability resources. They're trying to incorporate it into their operational impacts, some of them into their integrated resource plans, Um, and I think that that's a critical component. I think for a there was a time when the utilities were more resistant to the idea of distributed energy resources, and I see the utilities coming around to the point where they're realizing they need access to this information and that they can view this as an opportunity instead of an obstacle. Um, We've also seen these non-wire alternatives and the explorations into this idea of trying to perhaps quantify uh, the value so that they could defer some utility expenditures We're seeing movement towards distributed system planning, um, and we've seen revised market rules to allow for the aggregation. So I think that a lot of what we I had envisioned is happening. Um, It's just on what scale. Uh, I think it's unprecedented the further predictions about the continued increase in investing in uh, distributed energy resources. So we're on a journey, and and it's sort of heading the way you anticipated, but we're still in the early stages. We are. Yeah. Well, thanks for sitting down and talking to us. You're welcome.